In your Bibles to Nehemiah 8, um, we're not having a special Mother's Day sermon, but it really applies on Mother's Day because it's really all about how we can be filled with joy as believers. And I know that for me, in a little while, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my mom. And one of the biggest marks of my mom is that she was filled with joy. So Nehemiah 8 is where I believe we're going to see how do we become a church that's not only filled with godly mothers, but godly people who are full and feasting on God's word and full of joy. So let's, let's turn in our Bibles to, to Nehemiah 8, and we're going to do what we periodically do. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you go ahead and stand now, if you're able to. If you're not able to stand, stand in your heart, but sit down if you'd like. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. This is God's holy, inspired word, and that is why we stand And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they'd made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand. Padiah, Mishael, Machiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mushulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring in branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them 
and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. You may be seated. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your all-inspiring word. Thank you for your word that, that caused a response in your people. Thank you that your people who were hungry for your word were affected by your word and responded to your word. Thank you, God, that you move mightily whenever we give attention to your word. God, I pray that that would be the case for us today. Lord, let us set aside any and all distractions. Let us set aside anything else that's in our mind, the things we have to do, the plans for Mother's Day this afternoon, the, the lunch ideas, Lord, all those things. Lord, let us consciously set those things aside and let us be attentive to you. Because, God, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We hunger for you. And, God, I pray that as we do, that you would affect us. And, God, I pray the result would be that we receive joy in you. God, I pray that you would give me grace to speak, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would let me know what words to speak and what words to leave out. And God, I pray that you would give grace to each and every hearer, that you would fill all of us with your spirit to hear from you. Illuminate our minds, open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, and may we respond with joy at your speaking. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I thought it was appropriate on Mother's Day that I, I was thinking of my mom today. My mom is no longer with us, but I, whenever I think about my mom, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of just how joyful my mom always was. You know, she wasn't bubbly. She wasn't always cracking jokes. She actually didn't know how to tell a joke. She was terrible at it. You know, they say dad jokes. My mom, my mom tried jokes and they just didn't, never worked. But she was full of joy. She wasn't, she wasn't overly optimistic. She wasn't, you know, always saying things are great when they weren't. She, but she had joy. She had this residual kind of deep down river of joy that just kind of permeated everything she did. And in, and in every situation, no matter what she encountered, no matter how hard things got, she had a joyful perspective. Now, now that's not because of how my mom grew up. She didn't grow up in a Christian home. She didn't know Jesus until I was about four years old. She grew up not only not, not, not in a Christian home, but she grew up in an abusive home. Her, her father was very abusive. He was an alcoholic, and then he died at an early, at, at when she was a young age. And then my, my grandmother was seldom there because she was working, trying to support the kids. So she didn't have an easy life, but she had joy as a believer. And then, you know, when we were growing up, we had lots of different hardships. We, we never had a lot. My mom never had a lot of money, so she, her joy was not because of what she had, but she always had this undercurrent of joy that, that permeated everything she did. My, my, my most frequent memory of my mom is whenever she'd be cleaning, she'd be doing the dishes, or she'd be vacuuming, doing something else, she wouldn't know we were around, and she'd be singing. Now, she had a terrible voice, and I think she'd laugh when I said that. She had a terrible voice. 
But she had a beautiful voice because she sang and made a joyful noise in the Lord. She didn't care what she sounded like. And so my, my most frequent memory is of my mom vacuum cleaning and she was oh, yeah, singing really out of tune. It was, and we would all just kind of laugh and scare her and she'd jump and she'd, she'd laugh and, or she'd be doing the dishes and singing and looking out the window and praising God. She was filled with joy. You know, her, her children, my siblings and I, we weren't the easiest. And that's probably an understatement. You know, we weren't the quiet, compliant types. I'm, I'm guessing you probably have guessed that with me, but my siblings weren't either. They weren't, they weren't the quiet, compliant types, but my mom still had joy in the midst of things, in the midst of putting up with all of us and all of our ups and downs when it wasn't really clear, would we really follow Jesus? And even in the midst of her cancer, she had joy. And talking about her funeral, she said, you know, I don't want you guys being sad and I don't want to play in a lot of sad songs because I know where I'm going and I know who I'm going to be with and I, I'm going to have incredible joy being with Jesus. And so I want you all to celebrate that. Otherwise, you don't really believe that I believed. She had this joy that was unshakable. She wasn't always bubbly and happy. She was sad, just got upset like everybody else did, but she had joy. And, and I thought, well, what was it that gave my mom joy? And, and, and it wasn't very hard to think about because I remember most mornings I would go and find my mom and she was reading God's word and she was praying and she was filled with joy and her, her countenance would change. Her, her very demeanor would change after she'd be in God's word. And if she was struggling with something, I'd see her and she'd be in God's word and then she'd be filled with joy. And really that was her common experience and where her joy came from was feasting on the word of God. As soon as she became a believer, she feasted on God's word. She meditated on his word. She responded to God's word. You know, maybe you didn't have a mom or a dad that was joyful, or maybe you didn't have a mom or dad. Maybe, maybe you didn't know joy yourself. Maybe you didn't have a parent raise you. The question is, though, do you have that kind of unshakable joy? I want you to think about it for a minute. Do you have an unshakable joy? If you're here today, I want you to walk out sure that you can have that kind of joy that permeates everything. So that's really what this passage, we see in this passage is they, they feasted on God's word. And because of their feasting on God's word, they had joy. The question for you is, do you have that kind of joy? Joy that sustains you throughout Whatever situation, whatever you encounter, whether you are sick or well, whether you have kids who are acting out or not, whether you have had a difficult childhood or a difficult home, I believe God has joy for us, a deep reserve of joy to sustain us, to strengthen us throughout life. Now, I'm not talking about putting on a fake face. As, as Christians, we don't want to pretend that everything's okay, that life is just fine. No, it's not. But in the midst of things not being okay, in the midst of living in this broken world, there is a joy that we can know that's our strength. Do you have that joy? I'm talking about the kind of joy that sustains you through all of life's circumstances. Now, maybe you've had that joy in the past and you wonder, how can I get that back? I want that, want that, I want to experience that again. I'm not, I'm not experiencing that. And I think the scripture is helpful in that as well. And, then, and I think the, the main idea that we're going to see by the end of this passage is really feasting on God's word fills us with joy. Feasting on God's word, it makes you full. 
and what it makes you full with if you're truly feasting, truly understanding, getting. And I don't just mean reading and, and, and hearing the words, but if you're feasting on his word, feeding on his word, being satisfied with his word, it fills you and will fill you with a sustaining grace of the joy of the Lord. And it really describes three main ways that we can feast on God's word in this passage. And the first thing that we see in verses 1 through 8 is that they were hungry. That's, that's where you start before a feast, you start being hungry. If you're going to feast, you need to be hungry to begin with. And so we see that in the first eight verses, this passage is that they were hungry to hear God's word. Are you hungry this morning? Now, I'm not talking about thinking about what your Mother's Day plans are for this afternoon, but are you, are you hungry for God's word? So often, the reason we lack joy is because we, we hunger for other things to give us joy. You ever, you ever been there before? You ever hunger for other things to give you joy? I, I have. I do all the time. You know, we can hunger for people's opinions of us to give us joy. We can hunger for our job to give us joy. We can hunger for money to give us joy. We can hunger for position or influence. We can hunger for our safety. We can hunger for our wellness, our health to be our source of joy. We can hunger for our feelings or maybe a relationship to give us joy. Anybody ever been there hungering for any of those things? Often we can hunger for all of those things and hunger for all those things instead of hungering for God and his word, it robs us of joy. So where we begin by being filled with joy is we begin by hungering for God's word. In order to hunger for God's word, we've got to stop filling ourselves on things that don't satisfy. You know, a famous general once said that an army marches or travels on its stomach. Now, we're referred to because it's kind of the army of the Lord. We are, we are fighting for him. We are in his army. But, but we can't function as an army. We can't function as God's people unless we're filled with his word. You're not going to be able to function like that. You know, the, the general meant that what you, what you, you can't go very far, you can't do very much, you can't conquer if you are running on empty for very long. And I don't know about you, but so often I feel like I'm running on empty. And I wonder, why do I feel like I'm running on empty? And then I look and think, you know what? I've not, I've not been feasting on God's word. I'm not hungering for God's word because other, I'm letting other things kind of draw my appetite away. What do, you, what do you allow to take away your appetite? You know, if, if when I was eating dinner, sorry, not eating dinner, when I, was, when I was growing up as a kid, before we'd eat dinner, I'd ask for a snack, and my mom would say, no, not right now, because we're just about to eat. Because she didn't want my appetite to be spoiled, because she had good things for, prepared for me. You know, so often we can fill ourselves up on things that don't satisfy, and what we see in this passage is the people were hungry. As soon as they finished building the wall, They've just got finished building the wall. As soon as they were safe, as soon as they were secure, as soon as they got into God's place, they knew that what they needed most was God. And how they would receive God was through his very word. God speaking and mediating his presence through his word is really what they wanted most. And so they cry out. It says, they, they told Ezra, Ezra, bring us the book. And I can imagine just, you know, if you've ever been to a concert, somebody shouts out, you know, hey, come on out when all the... The people ahead of time come out. They want the main headliner to come out. They, they, they didn't want to be satisfied with anything else. They're, Ezra, bring us the book. And they cried out for Ezra to bring them the book. They were hungering for God's word. You know, sometimes we can hunger for what's essentially cotton candy. 
and you know, entertainment or momentary happiness or worldly pleasures or good things, but things that won't satisfy us. It's like, like eating 30 cones of cotton candy. I don't know if you ever imagine doing that, but as a kid, I probably ate a lot of cotton candy. And, and when you fill yourself up on cotton candy, it looks like a huge volume. If you had 30 cones of cotton candy, it'd be a big volume, but really it's no substance. It goes away, and in the end, it'll give you an upset stomach, and it'll leave your appetite spoiled. What do you hunger for that spoils your hunger for God? What do you need to put aside and say, no, I don't want to spoil my appetite? What we see in this chapter is the people of God, they're built up by feasting on the word of God. And the first way that we see that they, they hunger for God, the first evidence of that is, is not only they, they call for God's word, but they're attentive to God's word. They're attentive to God's word. Not only, it says they were gathered together as one man, they were in unity together and they were attending around a common need and they were listening. They wanted to hear God's word. I wonder if that's the case for us. Do we hunger for God's word? And can you tell, are we attentive to God's word? You know, less than a month ago, there was an April 19th issue. There was a magazine named GQ, and they published a list of 21 books you shouldn't read and what to read in their place. Number 12, they listed as the Bible. Instead, they recommend that you read the notebook by Agata Kristoff. Here's what they had to say. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it but in who actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall, it's certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. By the way, that's the height of arrogance and sacrilege. He goes on to say, it's repetitive, self-contradictory, sentitious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. If the thing you heard about was good about the Bible was this nasty bits, then I propose to go to Christoph's The Notebook. It's a marvelous tale, two brothers who have to get along when things get rough. It's a sad commentary on what our culture seeks to be filled with, on what our society seeks to be filled with and satisfied with, looking for entertainment, looking for an easy read. The Bible is able to be comprehended by all, but it's not necessarily easy. But boy, it it is the most filling, the most satisfying, the most enjoyable feast you'll ever have. GQ got it completely wrong. It is indeed the finest thing that God has ever inspired man to write down because by God's words, we have life. The people were eager and they desired God's word. Why why did they desire God's word like that? Why were they eager? Because they knew that God's word created at the very beginning. They knew that God's word formed the people of Israel. They knew that God's word was what prophesied about their exile. They knew that God's word was what prophesied about their exile coming back. They knew that they relied. They lived and died by God's word. God's word instructs, it reminds, it refreshes, it gives hope. Not only were they seeking God's word, they were calling out to God's word. They were being attentive. It says they gave ear to God's word. But they submitted to God's word. And I love the picture that we have. They call Ezra. He goes up on this high stage, this platform that they had built. And there was no reason for us to know that he was up and above. But, but I think the reason is, is that the author says, you know, I want you to see that the word of God was not only physically high for them. The, the word of God was exalted in their eyes. 
They were submitting. It was an outward sign of the fact that they were submitting to God's word. And that's why you'll find in, in some other Reformed type churches, they have this really high altar where God's word is read because God's word is to be exalted and we want to honor and give, give due submission to God's word. So they submitted to God's word. They hungered for God's word. They attended to God's word. Their, their ears were listening for God's word. And he read it, it says, from early morning, so just after sunrise, probably until midday. You're talking like five or six hours. And so today, I thought it would be good. Why don't we just kind of go for Mother's Day? We'll go five or six hours. What do you think? Anybody up for that? Well, not really, obviously. We're not going to do that. But they gave attention to God's word so much so that they voted significant time to God's word. They, they, they gave attention to God's word. They submitted to God's word. And, and then it says they stayed in their place while it was being explained or expounded. So Ezra was probably reading, and then you have the Levites all up on this platform. And then he'd probably read, and then the Levites would go down and make sure, because there's like 50,000 people gathered here in this courtyard. And so the Levites were probably going amongst them and teaching and so as would read, they would teach, as would read, they would teach, as would read, they would teach. And they stayed there for hours because they were submitting to God's word. They were hungry for God's word. And I love how it says they gave their ears to the people. And this, this week we have been dog sitting. Now we, we don't have a dog at home and there's many good reasons for that for us. And I think those will continue. But uh, the, um, the dog that we're watching and every time we dog sit, we, we love it, and then we're glad to give it back. And, and we're glad to say, you know what? It's good that we don't have a dog. But um, I, I love dogs, by the way. We, we really do love animals. So, but the, the funny thing about this dog is that when you talk to it, it kind of cocks his head. I don't know if you've ever seen a dog do that. The dog kind of cocks his head. If you call the dog's name, and it cocks his head, and his ears kind of go up. And they, it, it pulls its ears back. And I thought, what a great picture that is of kind of seeking to understand, leaning in, kind of like, what? What are you saying now? the dog can't understand hopefully we understand a little better than that but it's this attentiveness this focus this this dog stares at you by the way when you say you call its name it kind of stares at you and just stands there cocks his head stares at you makes you feel like am I just not communicating clearly or what's going on am I the dumb one and and so the dog cocks his head listens and, and because it's trying to figure out what you're saying now it, obviously dogs don't speak our language or at least in the same way but here's the beautiful thing is that God created us to speak his language and to hear and understand the language that he's given to us. And God communicates to us his character, his nature, and who he is through language. And, and really, it's as we understand God's word and hear God's word that we feed, that he fills us. You know, Jesus, the way he turned away temptation when the devil came to him in the wilderness is he told him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. What are we living by? What are you hungry for? You know, we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we just feasting on the things of the world by bread? Are we, are we hungry? Are we trying to live? Are we being attentive to, submitted to God's word? today's distracted age, it's easy for us to neglect the discipline of listening like that. We can get easily distracted. We can, you know, even in church, we can get in a conversation or we can just check ourselves out or do something on our devices or we can 
kind of let our mind wander, and it takes effort. Not just here, but it takes effort to be attentive to the teaching of God's word. If you're going to your quip class, if you're going here, if you're in your own personal Bible study, it takes effort, it takes work, but it is work that is worth it. It's work with a reward. How about you? When you hear God's word, are you attentive? Are you leaning in? Are you trying to understand? Are you making an effort to curb your stray thoughts and say, no, I need to listen. I need to pay attention. I need to, I need to incline my ear. They held God's word in honor. They weren't worshiping the Bible. They were worshiping the God of the Bible. And I love what they did, they stood. That's why I had to stand again, and that's why periodically we stand when we read God's word. Now, as we've been going through Nehemiah, some practical reasons why not is because, you know what, it's a little long, and not everybody can stand that long. So, but we stand just like they stood in that day. We stand because it's a way to reflect that this is unique, this is God speaking. And God speaks to us, and it's a way to honor God. And they were showing that not only did they stand, but they stood under God's word physically, but also symbolically. They were standing under the preaching, the teaching of God's word. It wasn't just reading the Bible. It says they explained the meeting. They explained the sense. And so they stood under God's word instead of standing over God's word. The question for us today is where do we stand? Do we stand under the word of God, submitting to the word of God, or do we try to stand as an authority over God's word? There's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called God in the Dock, and it was, it was really about how an explanation, if you don't know what the dock is, by the way, it's like a courtroom, and, and when you sit there beside the judge, it's in the dock, and, and, and so sometimes what he says is that we can treat God like he's the one to be examined as if we're the authority over him. Instead, our right place is for God to examine us. He's the right judge. Where do we place God? Do we stand under his word or do we stand as the authority to judge God's word? How do you listen to God's word being taught? Do you give honor to God's word? Is are you showing that you're trying to listen for what God has to say and submitting to that? Not only that, I love how they responded. It says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen! Amen! This was an interactive crowd. I love it. As a pastor, I love that people interact when they do. You know, you love to hear that people are listening, but it's great because they were responding and it encouraged the people around them. It also was a wonderful worship to God. They said, amen and amen. So it's biblical to actually say amen, right? Hey, there we go, good. Um, They said amen and amen, and then they lifted up their hands, and I love how they respond. It says, and they bowed their heads, they worshiped the Lord. What is that showing us? They were not only submitting to God's word, they weren't just showing that they were attending to God's word, but they were humbled by and worshiping, and they were grateful in response to God's word. Do we approach God's word that way, humbly? That's, That's when revival begins, by the way. 
If you want revival in your own life, you want revival in the church, you want revival in your community, you want revival in this city, it begins with a hunger for God and a hunger for his word by a humble submission and a gratitude to God for his word and then feasting on him. I love they respond in humility and gratitude. Do we come to God's word that way with a similar posture? Do you come expecting God to speak? Because he does, he will. And let me tell you, when you come expecting to hear God speak, and you're listening, you're leaning in, and you're grateful, and you're asking God, God, please let me understand this. Lord, let this sink into my heart. God is always faithful, because why? He says his word is living and active. Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. His word is alive. Do we put ourselves in that humble posture? You know, it might mean looking like we, we put away distractions. You know, on Sunday mornings, it might look like some people take notes. That's the way they focus. I focus by taking notes. Other people, that's really distracting. They take notes, and so they say, you know what, I'm gonna set that aside because I just end up doodling. And so they have to put that aside. And whatever it looks like for you, how do you give attention to God's word and show that it is a priority on your own life? Not only were the Levites helping them understand objectively what God's word meant, which is what we need. We need to not only hear the reading of the word, we need to then have a sense of what does God's word objectively mean. And then it says they shared the sense so that they understood it. What that means is so that they could apply it. The sense of God's word. And sometimes it takes work. It takes work not just to hear God's word, but to understand it and then get the sense of, wait a minute, how, what is, how does this apply to my life? That's why during the week in small groups for our church, we believe God has called us. It's not the Bible doesn't command us, but we believe God has called us to take that on Sunday that we probably have forgotten by Wednesday. We know that. And say, you know what? We need to be reminded of an understanding of God's word, the sense of God's word, so that we apply God's word so that we're not just hearers of the word but we're doers of the word. And so we see that they, they hungrily heard God's word. They sought to understand God's word. And then in verses 9 to 12, they were deeply affected by God's word. They were deeply affected by God's word. Look down your Bibles at their response. Look in verse 9. It says, Nehemiah and the Levites, they all said, this day is holy. Now look how they were affected. At the end of verse 9, it says, don't mourn and weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. They were deeply affected. This was not mere head knowledge. This wasn't something they just thought, oh, that's nice, that's good. No, they thought, this means something. God's speaking to me. This has not only meaning for my life, it has application to my life, and God intends for it to have an effect. You know, we don't want to be just intellectually understanding God's word. We want to understand God's word, think about it, meditate on it until it affects our heart. We want to be deeply affected by God's word. You know, in some ways, it's been said that the Bible functions like a mirror. Now, the, the glass itself is, is kind of like scripture. It's the means by which we see ourselves clearly. It represents the character, the nature of God. With the scripture shows us who God is. And then it shows us who we are. 
in, in how we either reflect the image of God or in ways how our face might be dirty. God's word reveals who we are. And here we can see evidently it revealed who they were. It revealed their sin. It had an effect, not just intellectually, but emotionally. They, they moved from a conviction mentally to a heart conviction, and then they had a godly sorrow, and they were weeping and mourning in response. They were likely weeping and mourning as they realized what God's people had lost what Adam and Eve had lost. We don't know what portions Ezra read from, but five or six hours, it was probably a, a decent portion of scripture, or at least a good overview of the salient points of, of probably fall and, and man's covenant with God through Abraham and how Israelites continually broke covenant and how the reason for them going into exile was because of the breaking of covenant and how God brought all the curses on them and then how now God, just as he had promised, he's brought them back out of exile. And so they wept and they mourned. They wept and they mourned as they heard the words of the law. It led them to an understanding of repentance. Whenever we see this kind of weeping and mourning in the Old Testament and the New alike, but especially in the Old Testament, it's a sign of, of repentance, a sign of humility. It's, it's a sign that they're responding to God. The Old Testament tells us the character and nature of God and our need for God, and they beheld the the mirror of God's word, they just saw how weak and sinful they were, how in need they were, what they lost, and it made them weep. But I love that it doesn't end there. You see, the word of God brings conviction and weeping, but look down in verses 10 to 12. Look down your Bibles, please. Look in verses 10 to 12. Not only did he say, don't mourn and weep, You know, he says in verse 9, don't be grieved, don't mourn, don't weep, this day is holy. But then he tells him something else. In verse 10 he says, go your way, eat the fat. That means eat the good things, eat eat the bounty of the Lord, eat the fat. And drink sweet wine, celebrate. Send portions to people who have nothing ready. Share God's good provision, celebrate God's good provision. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine. For this day is holy and don't be grieved. And then he says something that's really surprising here. He says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you're thinking, wait a minute, they, they were just weeping and mourning. How is he saying the joy of the Lord is your strength? Why is he saying that? How can the joy of the Lord be their strength when they are experiencing conviction, when they are, they are experiencing sorrow, godly sorrow there in the midst of repenting. Why does he tell them the joy of the Lord is your strength? How can the joy of the Lord be our strength in the midst of an awareness of our sin and our loss? How can the joy of the Lord be our strength in the midst of conviction and repentance? And I think Second Chronicles 7.14 gives us a clue. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I think Nehemiah could say the joy of the Lord is your strength, not because 
they were experiencing all the good things they should, but because the joy of the Lord is what brought them out of exile. The joy of the Lord was what rejoiced and bring him into the promised land. The, it was the Lord's joy that allowed them to build the wall. It was God's pleasure, his joy, that allowed them to be safe. It was God's good pleasure that they were now living in, and so they shouldn't act like God's still angry with them because they had evidences of God's joy over them. And even in their conviction was an evidence, their mourning was an evidence that they were giving themselves to God, that they were looking to God, crying out to God, and it was surety that God would forgive them. Now, in part, for them, they could only know this partial joy, a temporary joy in one sense, you know, it went from, you know, they, they responded to God, and if they weren't in obedience to God, then, then they would be taken back into captivity, and they would struggle. But we can have a joy that's deeper. It was God's joy to bring them to rebuild Jerusalem, to strengthen them for the task, to protect them, to forgive them. And he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. As Christians, we don't place our hope in a physical safety, in a physical city. That's not what we're longing for. We don't even place our hope in this, this local body of Jesus Christ. We place our hope ultimately in the fact that God has brought us out of exile. God has brought us out of a place where we were away from him. That's what we celebrated this morning in baptism, is that God brought us out of a place where we did not know him. We were dead in our sins, and now he's brought us into a relationship with him so that we are so closely united with Jesus that when we place our faith in Jesus, it's like we are dead to our old man and new to life. And so while there is, is good to experience conviction, let us never stay there because God brings newness of life. Conviction is good, but conviction is meant for us then to turn to God and rejoice in his new life. And that's, that's what Nehemiah is encouraging me. The joy of the Lord is to be your strength. And for us Christians, we can have a sure joy that's not dependent on our behavior. It's not dependent on our performance. It's dependent on the performance of Jesus Christ, which is perfect, and God has perfectly applied to us. So when your behavior wanes, when you experience conviction, that's meant for you to repent, but then to turn to him in joy and say, thank you, God, that you've forgiven me. And Lord, was your joy the joy of who I am and you be my strength. So now as a Christian, your identity is no longer in your performance. Your identity is no longer in what you think you're worthy. Your identity is in the worth of Jesus and that is meant to give you joy and be your strength. They were stirred in their hearts, in their minds. And then they were affected and I, and I love that they responded. They didn't argue with Nehemiah and Ezra. Look in, look in verse 12. You know, the Levites have comforted them. Verse 11, it's kind of like when I comfort my child, saying, it's going to be okay. It's okay. You know, I, I, know that, I know that you dropped the cupcake, but I've got 12 more for you. It's okay. I love in verse 12, it says, all the people then, they responded. They went their way to eat 
and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They understood why the joy of the Lord was their strength, how the joy of the Lord was their strength. God's word pierces to our hearts so that, it, so that he can give us life through his word. When the great physician cuts away, it's to heal us. They celebrated, they ate and drank and they sent portions. And I was thinking for us as believers, when we have been given this new life that we have in Jesus, we've been given the forgiveness of sins, we've been adopted, we've been made God's children forever, never to be taken away. We're meant to share that with the people who don't have any portions. So eat and drink in the goodness of God. Feast on his word. Let God's word communicate the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. If you placed your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then feasting on God's word is meant to give you joy so you understand who you are now in him. And then it's also meant for you to share. Eat and drink and then send portions. And make great Rejoicing. I love it. I love it says they make great rejoicing. Are, are you greatly rejoicing? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about pretending or putting on a fake face, but we are meant to rejoice in the objective truth of who God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. We're meant to rejoice in, in the fact that no matter what we encounter, he will enable us to bear up under it. And no matter if we die... We will reign and live forever with him. That's meant to affect us every day in how we interact with people and how we communicate to them when we see somebody else sinning and how we extend forgiveness and, and how we ourselves are forgiven and how we apply God's word to our lives. We're meant to greatly rejoice and have this undercurrent of joy in our lives. How about you? What do you get excited about? What do you rejoice in? I love it. It says they threw a big happy party, basically. They threw this wild party. They, had, they ate and they drank. Now, I don't want to they're sinning. When I say party, it's not sinful, okay? Christians are meant to have a good time. We're meant to be a happy people. God's people are meant to be a happy people. Not in debauchery, but rejoicing in God. They were celebrating, having a feast, eating and drinking. It says, made great rejoicing. Why? Because, look down at verse 12. It says, because of What? Because they understood, they got it. They understood the words that were declared to them. They understood that they were God's people and God had brought them out of exile and he brought them into a place of safety and that God was demonstrating his pleasure with them. They understood hope and freedom and joy, at least in part, because God had been reliable and trustworthy and faithful. He had done what he said he would do. He brought them out of exile and he enabled them to do what they did not think was possible to complete the building of this wall, to dwell in safety. And, and what did God promise in the covenant? It was to call a people to himself and bring a people to a place where they would dwell in safety with him. Now, in this world, we don't ultimately fully finally have that, but we do have safety and security in Christ here and now, no matter what happens around us, no matter what what rages around us, how storms may rage and life may be awful and stink at times. Because life stinks sometimes, right? But we can be sure that we are safe in him. 
we can be sure we are protected in him. Do you understand that? Do you rejoice when you understand the words that are declared to you? Do you rejoice when you understand who you are in Jesus? That he's adopted you, made you his own, that you're fully and completely accepted because of Jesus. That no one can, no one can snatch you from the hand of the Lord. What can man do to you now? I think the effect that we see here, it's meant to be the effect for everyone who understands the words declared. It's meant to be great rejoicing. That's what God intends for us. It's what he wants for us. But they didn't stop there. It says they came back to study God's word further. And so we see in verses 13 to 18, we see that they obediently respond to God's word. But this is not this dull obedience, this this robotic obedience like, oh, well, I've got to obey God. No, this was, look at what God's done now. You know what? How exciting that is? We want to study his word more because we want to experience more joy. And so what we really just see is that this obedient response to God's word, it furthers their experience of joy the more that they feast and understand and obey God in response to his word, the more that they feast on God's word, the more they are filled with joy. I know my own life have practically experienced that. It's not meant to make us proud, but when we are able to say no to sin and because we want to obey God, there's joy in that. We can say, thank you, God, that you enabled me to, you know, I didn't get angry right then when I really wanted to be angry. Or, oh my goodness, Lord, thank you for enabling me to say no to that temptation. God, I want to live for you. There's more joy in obedience than in giving in to our own desires. And so we see that they they went back and they started studying. And so in verse 13, the heads of the households, they went back with Ezra and they said, wow, we, we want to study even more. How do we hear more? We want more joy. And so they studied. Now, sometimes I know that if you are in school right now, you might not think of studying as joy. But in a sense it is because as you study, as you master a subject, not that we ever fully master God's word, but as you understand a subject, you understand it more deeply, you actually have more freedom in that area. And so the more you understand of of math or science or whatever you're studying right now and you're about to study for the next three weeks, right? You've got about three weeks till school ends for most of you. Whenever you master something, it actually gives you more confidence, more ability in that subject so that you actually have greater freedom and enjoyment, We're meant to study God's word not as punishment, but because God wants us to have greater freedom in our lives. He wants us to have greater enjoyment as we learn what does it look like to live for God the way that he designed us, and because the way that he designed us is best for us and most joy-inducing. What robs our joy is because we're slaves to sin. What gives us joy is being slaves to righteousness and living the way that God intended. That's what gives us true joy. You know, I I bet if you went and talked to Adam and Eve when you go to heaven and and you talk to them, I, I bet that they would say it was more joyful to obey. They understood that. We need to understand, we study God's word so that we can see, God, how do I experience more fully what you intended for us as humanity to live in your presence? And so they studied, they saw things they hadn't seen before, things, new things cropped up. And so we see that they saw this, this commandment to go and have this feast of booths or tabernacles. 
Now, God had commanded this Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. It was, it was where they would go away, and, and we see this in this passage, and they would cut um, leafy branches, and they would bring them back, and they would make huts or booths or, or makeshift tents. And it was a, they were supposed to do this because they needed to remember where they'd come from. They needed to remember that they were people who'd been brought out and that they were people who were dependent on God. You see, they lived in tabernacles or booths or tents made out of leaves when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so it was to remind them of where they came from. And we, we need that reminder too. We need to be reminded of where we've come from, what God has brought us out of. He's brought us out of slavery. We need to remind ourselves of that, not so that we, we think, oh no, I don't deserve, but so that we say, you know what, I didn't deserve, but yet he brought me out. I was a captive and he set me free. And so they told him to live in booths or live in these tents. And so they're supposed to remember that God had been with them. God was faithful to provide through the wilderness. And we need to be reminded of that too, by the way. You might be in the wilderness. God provides for us in the wilderness. Even if it doesn't seem like that sturdy of a provision, God's faithful to provide. God protected them. He brought them out of the promised land and he gave them a home there's a way they confessed their confidence wasn't in the wall, but it was in God. It, they might have thought, you know what, this, I don't know if this is so necessary. Do we really need to do this anymore still? Do we, do we really have to go and live under a bunch of branches, make this makeshift tent? You know, they're kind of, it's not very weather friendly. You know, it's, it, it rains, you get wet. I don't like camping anymore. You get wet. There's bugs. I was thinking a few years ago at our, at our other house, we had a backyard that was mostly wooded. And then at the, at the end, end of our yard, we had a stream and the other side was a bunch of woods. And so Noah convinced me, my oldest son a few years ago, this is the last time I camped actually, Noah convinced me that, hey, dad, let's camp out in the backyard. I was like, okay, sure, that'd be great. I used to camp all the time when I was a kid. I love camping. I was a boy scout. I, I love going hiking and camping. I thought it was great. I've changed my mind since then. Um... He slept wonderfully and like, man, this is great. So refreshing and the air is wonderful. And I was up all night. The sounds of nature were not comforting. I wanted to kill things. I wanted to kill things that I didn't know what they were. I mean, I'm serious. I want to, there was like these owls or something. They were calling back and forth. And all I could think about is if I had a gun right now and could find them, I would slaughter them. And I meant it. I mean, I really did. And then after the owls stopped, after a few hours, like at three in the morning, in our other house in Greer, we had um, a lot of coyotes that would go through the woods back there. And there was this pack of coyotes that came through. And there, there had to be like 20 coyotes. You had different voices yipping and making noise. And then they run through the creek and they're all around. I mean, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I wonder how many coyotes it takes to be bold enough to break into the tent. And, and that's all I could think about. You know, I'm thinking, well, all right, what do I do when the coyotes come through? What, like, what am I going to do? I've got a flashlight. I've got a pocket knife. I'm not sure how far that'll go. I, I didn't sleep well. I, I love this. There's a guy named Tim Gaffigan, and he's talking to his wife. He's comedian. He's talking to his wife, and his wife's like, I, but I love camping. My parents, my parents took me camping all the time. It was wonderful. I can't believe your parents didn't take you camping. And he says, no, because my parents love me. Everybody camped until they invented houses. You know, I think that was the effect, really. It was supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be unpleasant in one sense. 
Sometimes we have to remember and put ourselves in the place where we remember just how unpleasant our life before Jesus was. And he wanted them to remember where they came from, remember that once they did not have a home they lived in temporary dwelling. Now, I think there were also some other positive effects that it had. You know, whenever I've camped or, or been away in the woods by myself, it, it's helped me remove distractions. I think they had distractions back then. They didn't have phones and electronics, but they had distractions of the daily stuff of life. And instead, for seven days, they, they lived in this makeshift hut on top of the roof and the courtyard and courtyards all around. They lived in this makeshift hut. And, and, and they were, in a good way, depriving themselves of some of the modern conveniences that even they had, but they were also getting rid of distractions because they wanted, they wanted to feast on God's word. You know, we're not called to make booths or tents, and I'm, I'm very grateful to God for that. We don't, we don't, we don't have to go out and, and make tents but we, there is a principle here of a regular time to gather together with the Lord and his people and to regularly refocus and put ourselves in a place of remembering what God's done. And, and the effect of that is it causes great rejoicing. You know, that's, that's one of the reasons why in, in a few months in August we have a family retreat. And, and we don't necessarily do it every year, but, but often we will go away for a few days to a place. And it's not because we're trying to to be legalist, but it's a great way to say, you know what, we're going to set aside distractions, we're going to set aside time to focus on God and his word and to feast on his word and be expectant to receive from him. So we have this thing we call renew that we call every, every August we've done for the last few years. I'm going to encourage you to do that too. It's a great way to set aside time to focus on God, to feast on God specifically. And that's what they were doing here. And I love that obedience here didn't result in drudgery. You know, that's, that's not what obedience does. The obedience didn't result in drudgery. Look, look down at verse 17. What does it say there? The end of verse 17. And there was very great, what was the one word? You can say it out loud. Rejoice. Say it again. Rejoicing. There was very great rejoicing. That was the result of them feasting on God's word, of them being attentive to God's word, being submitted to God's word, of them seeking to obey God's word, is that there was great rejoicing. God has great rejoicing in store for you and I. I love it. There was great rejoicing. And then it tells us they feasted for seven days. That must have been a phenomenal time. You know, I think it makes our renew look pretty small. We just go Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They were seven days away. They were seven days feasting. And it says every day they heard God's word proclaimed. Every day they did this. Every day they heard God's word proclaimed. It was like a seven-day camp meeting for those who are a little older. They celebrated God's word every day. And they gathered together at the end of the feast for a solemn assembly to, to give thanks to God. We, we, don't, we don't have a feast of booze, but we can celebrate in the same way. We can know even greater joy than they did. Because they longed for the one who would atone. They, they had a temporary atonement. They had an atonement that every year a lamb would go and atone for their sins. And so there was joy in that. Knowing they could be made right with God, but it was only temporal. It was, it was only for a year. And every year they had to atone again 
we have a lamb who has gone and atoned. He, he says he's tabernacled here with us. He, is, he made his tent with us. He lived among us. And so now we can know his joy of knowing that we're his people, that he's brought us out of slavery, he's brought us out of bondage, he has forgiven us all of our sins. If you placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins like we heard the two kids this morning give testimony of, there should be great rejoicing whenever there's baptism, but there should be great rejoicing for all of us who have responded and been baptized as well and that we can be sure we've been dead, made dead to sin and alive to Christ. No matter that we continue to sin, we've objectively been made dead to sin and alive to Christ. We walk now in newness of life. And not only that, we're, we're forever dear to God. He's adopted us. He's made us his own. No one can take us from him. And you know what? I, I like that the last chapter, and here we see some names, but in the last chapter he read through all the names the people have been brought out of exile. There will be a day when everyone's name who has placed their faith in Jesus, everyone's name will be read, and it won't be a boarding list. You'll be waiting for yours. And there'll be excitement. But you can know now, you can be sure now that your name, your joy is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life forever. And I love this song about how our, our name is written on his hands. It's proof that he forever holds us. And that one day we'll feast like this. Revelation 19.7 says, let us rejoice and exalt a picture of this future joy that we have already begun to enter into now. It says in Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What do you mean by that? These are the words that are true. These are God's true words, and that's meant to give us joy. Amen? I want to have the legacy that my mom had. I want that legacy of terrible singing with great joy. If you don't have that wellspring of joy, you can. By placing your faith in Jesus, trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. If you're a believer, you're not currently experiencing that. I believe God has that for you afresh by feasting on God's word to fill you with joy. And that's our prayer for each and every person here that you might feast, you might have joy knowing that you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a great celebration it will be. Amen? Well, let's, let's go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll close.